Well, good morning. Let's stand together and sing hymn 202. Hymn 202, all hail the power of Jesus' name. See everyone this morning. If you are visiting with us today, just for your information, our restrooms are located out the door to your left here and in the right there in the hallway. We also have a mother's lounge for moms, so if you need to change a baby or you need to step out and uh, nurse a baby, you're welcome to do that. We do have the service going in there today um, if that's something that's useful to you. On the inside, we have uh, several announcements there. Um, this evening, uh, we'll be having our preaching lab at 5 p.m. So for uh, men that are interested in learning how to preach, uh, we spend an hour there with you going through uh, some books together and just having discussions about that, trying to train up some more guys for the future. And that's been very encouraging. You also notice on the 23rd, uh, we have our regularly scheduled members meetings. We'll just have updates and things like that from our uh, last meeting and uh, give our, our usual reports that we do at our meetings. And so we encourage all of our members to be there so that you can be a part of that. 
You also notice on Saturday the 29th uh, at 9 a.m. we'll be doing a men's work day and cookout here at the church. So we have several projects, probably more than one day's worth of projects, but we'll try to get as much done as we can uh, of just maintenance and just general things that need to be done, some uh, spring cleaning and that kind of stuff. And so we want uh, any uh, abled body uh, boy or man that wants to come and uh, help with those is welcome to come. You don't have to be a church member to do that. Uh, we'll put you to work uh, if you want to work. And then we'll be doing a uh, cookout that afternoon and just uh, having a good time together uh, after we're done working. And then you'll also notice uh, on Sunday the 30th, we're going to be having a meal uh, after service. And we're doing that in appreciation of our cleaning team. Um, if you don't know, uh, each week when you come in, there's not little mice in the church that clean everything. There's uh, volunteers that serve throughout the week and make sure that our facility is clean. And uh, we do not have a, a custodian on staff that does this, but this is uh, people that are giving their time uh, and their energy to, to prepare the church building for us to be able to use. And they do an excellent job with that. And so we just want to take an opportunity to have a meal together, but also have a time during that meal of special recognition for them um, and their hard work and, and dedication that they have for that. And then you also notice on the 6th, beginning in June there, we'll have our uh, prayer and hymn sing service, which is a great time. Um, the last two months, I've really enjoyed that, and uh, and also uh, bring your kids because they get to call out hymns and sing hymns, and they do a really good job with that and have a lot of fun with it. So that's a great uh, great opportunity uh, to be there. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll continue this morning. Father, we thank you for this great opportunity that you've given us today. To come to this place that is set aside, set aside for you at a time that is set aside for you. Lord, we know that everything that we have comes from you, that the, the breath of life that we had in our lungs this morning when we woke up was from you. Our ability to be here this morning is from you. Everything that we have comes from you. And Lord, we just thank you that you've given us an opportunity to uh, return thanks to you and worship today for the many things that you've done for us. Not even the most glorious work of Christ, which you're certainly worthy of worship for, but even the small things that we often take for granted, Lord, that today we can take an opportunity to sing your praises, to speak about you, to read your word and what it has to say to us, to, to give to your word, to come to your table, to fellowship with each other, and that uh, Lord, you are worthy of all these things, and you're worthy of our full, undivided attention and dedication to you. And so we ask that you would help us with that this morning. Lord, before we proceed any further, we want to confess that where there have been times this week where we have missed opportunities that you've given us, where we haven't thanked you for your blessings, and we have taken them for granted, and we ask that you would forgive us. We ask that whatever the distractions were from this past week, and there are many that you would just clear those out of our minds, help us to, to focus uh, solely on you in the next hour and give us supernatural ability to do that. We ask that, uh, especially as your word comes to us today uh, through our brother Chris, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would magnify your glory in our minds, that, that we would contemplate on your holiness and your awesomeness and that it would uh, inspire us to worship you even so we ask that you would meet here with us today and that you would have your way uh, in our service in Christ's name. 
you look inside of your bulletin there on the second page, uh, we have our catechism question for today. It's question number 17. And so I'll begin and then we'll read this together. Did our first parents continue in the estate wherein they were created? Our first parents, being left to the freedom of their own will, fell from the estate wherein they were created by sinning against God. Where does scripture teach this? Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Let's stand again together. In 134, in 134, Jesus paid it all. Turn together to hymn 411, 
Hymn 411, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus.
Father, as we come to this time to bring an offering to you, we ask for for your help. Lord, you know that the needs all around the world are great. The needs in this community are great. That, Lord, just as we've seen in your word that you can multiply loaves and fishes, and so you can multiply this offering also. And Lord, you know more than we do the work that must be accomplished and that needs to be accomplished through this local church. And so, Lord, we ask as this offering is taking up that you would uh, continue to bless us with the employment and the resources uh, that we need to not only care for our own families, but to accomplish your work uh, here in Waynesville and Haywood County and to the ends of the earth. Uh, we pray for the church plants and the missionaries that are going to receive some of these funds today, that you would uh, multiply it to them, give them everything that they need to proclaim your gospel and to have success in their ministry. And let us receive joy in exchange for these gifts. Lord, we ask that you would do spiritual work with these material gifts and that we can't do it, but you can. And so we just surrender these gifts to you now and we ask that you would bless them. In Jesus' name. Old Testament reading this morning is Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. But the king will rejoice in God. 
Everyone who swears by him will glory, for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for this time when we can gather together and open up your word. And we pray this morning, God, that you would speak to us from your word. Speak to us authoritatively. Speak to us powerfully. Speak to us through the power of the Spirit. Father, that we may be transformed in the innermost man. Lord, we confess this morning that as we come, we may be distracted by things of this past week. And Father, we pray for your help to push all those things aside that this morning we can hear directly from your word. We pray that your word, as you promised, would do its perfect work in our hearts. We know that whenever the word is preached, it does not return again void. Father, some of us this morning need encouragement. Some of us need strengthening. Some of us need joy. Some of us need just reminding of your goodness and your faithfulness. And Father, we know that as we leave today, that you will do that work in our heart. And we ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Matthew chapter 17 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew chapter 17. Very interesting text this morning, one that perhaps you are familiar with. Uh, Commonly entitled just tried the transfiguration of Christ. Uh, this text is one that oftentimes is, is veiled in, in this allure of, of secrecy or unknown because it is such an unusual text. What, what exactly is happening here um, as Jesus is transfigured uh, before his disciples? In fact, I was, uh, usually always read the sermon from a gentleman by the name of S. Lewis Johnson who pre- preached at Believer's Chapel in Dallas, Texas for many years, a, w- a wonderful expositor of the Word. And in his sermon, he was talking about how he went back in his study of all of these uh, different Reformed theologians and looked at their commentaries and at systematic theologies. He's trying to figure out, you know, what is the doctrine uh, of the transfiguration? And he said, I was astounded to find how many guys either just didn't even cover that or very small amount of information is given about what is happening in this text. Now, I'm not going to promise you this morning that as we walk away, we're going to have a complete doctrine of the transfiguration established here in our time together this morning. Uh, You don't have the attention span, and I don't have the breath uh, for us to be able to do that this morning. But I do want to take just a look at this text, and I was sharing with Pastor Ben a little earlier this morning about how much, even in my own study this week, I just learned about what's happening here and about how many profound things uh, the Holy Spirit crammed into this one moment uh, that really speaks not only of, of who Jesus is and what He was trying to teach His disciples, but I think really in a profound way, as we've seen God do so many times, where we are currently as a church and as a denomination speaks very perfectly to the issues at hand. So if you found your way there to Matthew chapter 17, let's stand together. We're going to read the first 13 verses. Matthew chapter 17, starting with verse 1. And the scripture says, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold... Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. 
And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him and did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. You can be seated. So we find here a very similar story as we found in many places in the Scripture of a mountaintop experience. Uh, We see this with Moses as he goes up to Mount Sinai to receive the law from God. Uh, We find this with Elijah and the false prophets on Mount Carmel. We found it also uh, with Elijah on Mount Sinai as well. And then uh, when Satan took Jesus to a very high mountain, we find this kind of this interesting parallel all throughout the scriptures of going up to this high place to meet with God or to have this experience with God. And it's kind of even still why today when people talk about an encounter in their life, they call it a mountaintop experience. The reason that is so is because we find these mountaintop experiences inside of the Scripture. But the first thing that I want you to notice in this text this morning is a time of preparation. A time of preparation. Now, there's preparation happening on both ends of the spectrum here. There's preparation happening in the life of Jesus, and there's preparation happening in the life of these three disciples. So the first thing we want to look at before we talk about this time of preparation is just a little background of what's happening. So Matthew tells us here that this was six days later. Well, six days later from what? Well, six days later from where Pastor Ben left off last week when Jesus was foretelling his death and talking about what was going to happen. You remember Peter was rebuking Jesus and saying, Jesus says, this will never happen to you. And then Jesus goes and says, listen, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. And you remember that promise that he gives there at the end. He says, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father, and there are some of you who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So the disciples have really been on this this pinnacle. Uh, Really, in, in their lives, they might even call that a mountaintop experience of being in this intimate communication with the Lord and learning so much about the plans that He has and what God has sent Him to do. And even though they're struggling to wrap their minds around what God has for Jesus to do, they're still keen on on wanting to know more. So six days has transpired. They have made their way now up on this mountaintop. Now, Tradition had always attributed this to Mount Tabor, but uh, that was really south of Galilee and in Jesus' time had a large fortress on the summit of it. Uh, So most scholars today believe it was either Mount Hermon uh, or uh, Mount Mirian, which was the highest point in Palestine proper at the time. And there's really no way to determine because none of the gospel writers give us the specific location. Uh, but just determining by what happens in the remaining verses when Jesus comes down in verses 14 and 15, we can determine it's this location that would have been close by uh, to where they had left off uh, there at the end of chapter 16. But the most important thing to understand is that they had separated themselves away again. As you see Jesus doing this with the disciples, they would move off to a private place. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us this, but Luke tells us in chapter 9, verse 28, that they had gone up onto this mountain to pray. And we find Jesus oftentimes pulling away either by himself to pray or with his disciples to pray. And so he, he's separating out because he's, he's just laid out all of this before his disciples of what he's getting ready to do, that he has to go and he has to die. 
that his messiahship is not one that is coming into power here in the moment, but in order for his messiahship to come in power in the kingdom later, he has to go and lay down his life as a sacrifice for sin. Now, we know Jesus in his human frailty struggled with, with this. That's why we find in the garden that this very last moment before the soldiers come and take him away, Jesus cries out, says, Father, not my will, but thine be done. Because in his humanness, Jesus was struggling because he knew what he was going to have to suffer, not only physically as a human being, but even spiritually before God in bearing the sin of all humanity, of all God's people upon himself. Jesus knew what that was going to be like. And so in those struggles, Jesus would separate himself away to pray. And he's pulled these men alongside of him. And the question is, well, why just these three men? Why just Peter, James, and John? Well, Peter, we know as the leader, we, we talked about that a few weeks ago, that he kind of stands out as the leader of the apostles, the one who was their mouthpiece, who would often stand up and make declarations on their behalf. We have John, who, who describes himself, in, not in a private way, but in humility, as the beloved disciple, the one who Jesus loved. And then we had James, who is represented as really as one of the earliest disciple martyrs in the church there in the early chapters of Acts, being martyred by Herod. It's interesting to note that these three men were also witnesses uh, to Christ's agony in the garden as he's there and he's, they're witnessing what's happening with Jesus as he's praying and agonizing over what's to come. As Spurgeon said in this moment, perhaps the first sight of seeing Jesus here on the mountain being transfigured by God was necessary to sustain their faith under the second there in the garden. But there's also the understanding that three witnesses serve as a confirmation. Jesus did not need the entire disciples there, and he'll talk about that in just a moment, because he's going to command his, these three men not to say anything. It's often been said that uh, the only way that three people can keep a secret is if two of them are dead, right? And so that, that's the kind of the struggle that we have with human ability. So Jesus knew that he couldn't bring all the disciples up there, but he, he brought three of them, because the book of Deuteronomy says, "...a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin." which is committed on the matter of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So in the Jewish world, if you had one person, it was subjective. But if you had three eyewitnesses to a matter, that matter was confirmed. So Jesus pulled these, these inner three of the disciples away with him to go up to the mountain to, to witness all that was getting ready to take place. And as I said earlier, this was a time of preparation, not only for Christ, but also for the disciples. The events that are going to follow in this passage confirm to Christ his calling from God and his task to go to the cross to die. That's not that Jesus in his divinity didn't understand, but even in his humanity, Jesus struggled the same way that we do with emotions, with doubt and uncertainty. And so in this moment, God is confirming through this, this physical manifestation, through this, this appearance that happens, that yes, I have sent you, I have called you, this is the task that is at hand for you. This is what you must go and do. But it was also to confirm to the disciples the truth that they had already confessed about Christ. Remember what Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He had confessed that with his mouth. But now God was going to confirm that to Peter in this very powerful way that, yes, Peter, what you have said, what the other disciples have said, what you believe is really true. But it's interesting to think about this here, that in this moment, you'd think if, if Jesus is going to the cross, he understands what's getting ready to happen, that, that maybe he would be doing something else to prepare himself for this moment. But the thing that we find him doing is that he pulls away and prays. 
So what does that mean for us? What does Christ's commitment to prayer in these difficult moments tell us about how we should prioritize prayer in our own lives? Because we're often tempted in a difficult situation, right, to go to any other source. We'll go uh, to the self-help section, we'll go to the internet, we'll go to other people. Now, God does give us the resources that, that, that offered time give us answers. And God gives us uh, like-minded uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who can offer us help and support. There's nothing wrong with that. But in difficult times and circumstances, in times of uncertainty, in times when we're struggling, our very first thought should be one that directs us to prayer with God the Father. Because this is exactly what Jesus demonstrates over and over again, going to God the Father and praying and seeking His face for understanding about what was getting ready to take place. So we see that this moment was a time of preparation. But the second thing that I want you to notice was that this was a very monumental moment. It was a time of preparation, but it was a monumental moment. Look at verses 2 and 3. And it says, He was transfigured before them, and His face shone like the sun, and His garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with Him. Now, the first thing we notice in this passage was that Jesus now took on this special appearance. This word that is used here, transfigured, is, is the, often this is the, the same root of the word that we find in Romans chapter 12, where it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then later on in 2 Corinthians, where it says, but we with unveiled face, beholding him as a mirror of the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. The language is also similarly used when it talks about the idea of Jesus shining like the sun and his garments being as white as light when Moses came down from the mountain after being in the presence of God. And you remember in that story that God said that no man can look on me and live. So he hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and covered him with his hand as he passed by. And he allowed Moses to look out and see him as he went away from him. And even just in that, Jesus, just in the, in the rear portion of seeing God from behind in his manifestation there, it said that when he came down from the mountain, he glowed so brightly that it terrified the people. So in this moment, Jesus is revealing His, his true glory as much as, as a human being can endure and, and a human being can, can take on. Jesus is revealing that to His disciples here in this moment. This, this open manifestation, not of, of a substance change, but just of appearance. His appearance is transformed. He's, he's pulling back the veil and allowing His disciples to see Him in the splendor of His glory. This was a real experience. Uh, liberal scholars have often tried to point to this and say, well, what's happening here is that this is just a, some type of vision, some type of dream uh, that these men were having. But what we find here is in all three gospel accounts, in, in, in Matthew and Mark and Luke, where they talk about this moment, we find that the clarity of the story is one that is not a vision that some person had and then told to the other. Because they talk about it later on in their writings. They, they describe it later on in different situations in the New Testament. As this was something that actually happened, this was a real experience for each of them. Mark says that his garments became radiant and is exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Now, in the time in which Jesus lived, they had what they called a fuller. And a fuller was a person who cleaned clothes. And what they did was they would take them down to the river and they would basically use this concoction of soap that they had and they would beat these clothes upon the rocks to get the stains out. 
And they would make these clothes white again through this process. And so the moment and the thing that, that Mark is trying to describe here is to, to understand of how radiant and how white and how pure this was. Anytime you find this word of a fuller being used or a launderer being used in the scripture, it's talking about the idea of something that is, that is eminently clean. Hey, what we would use today is something that has been bleached white. So every bit of, of discoloration has been taken out, and it's so powerfully white that it could not be any whiter than it is. And so this is the glory that's being revealed of who Jesus is. It's a special appearance that these disciples have been given in this moment that nobody else was going to receive in, in this period of time. John writes it this way. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now I want you to imagine just for a moment that you are Peter, James, or John standing here in this moment, and this man who you've been following for the past three years, and you believe him to be the Messiah. Can you imagine what this would have been like for them to all of a sudden, this man who they've been camping with and walking with and fishing with and laughing with and joking with, this man who has become their very best friend here upon the earth, now all of a sudden experiences this change and unveils himself in the fullness of his glory. It's almost too great for even human words to describe and understand. But it's not just a special appearance because there are special guests that show up on the scene here. Because it says, behold, even in the midst of this, and this was glorious enough, right? You can imagine how glorious this would have been if, if only this had happened. If only Jesus had taken them up on the mountain and revealed to them his glory, they could have gone back down the mountain and had an experience to tell about for the rest of their life. But it continues to get better. Because as they look up, there is Moses and Elijah with him. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us how they recognized Moses and Elijah, Maybe it was just so obvious that there was no doubting who these two men were. Uh, maybe it was just based upon the understanding of they knew that these two men stood apart in, in, in prophecy and in the law of the Old Testament. But this is what we find here in this moment. Why are Moses and Elijah, why these two men? Why not Abraham? Uh, why not one of the other prophets? What we find here is that Moses represented to the Jews the law of God. His name was synonymous with the Old Covenant. And in fact, oftentimes the Old Testament was law was called the law of Moses. So here's Moses as a representative of the law of God in the Old Testament. Moses, you know, raised in Pharaoh's house and he was exiled out uh, to Midian, then returned to Egypt to lead God's people out of bondage and, and all the, the different Miracles that happened on Moses' behalf with God's power uh, throughout the plagues and then uh, kind of culminating in the parting of the Red Sea. There was no denying the power of God in Moses' life. There was no denying that God had chosen Moses as his special called man. So Moses here is representing the Old Testament law. And then you have Elijah. And Elijah represented to the Jews all of the prophets. If you had to think about one person to represent all the prophets of the Old Testament, it would have been Elijah. As the voice of God to the people, he was a great defender of the law. And throughout his life, God moved powerfully as well. We think about the familiar moment uh, with, with Elijah on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. Uh, when, remember when, when the prophets there and they were going to gather up and they put their sacrifices there. And he, he said, okay, we'll continue to cry out. And they cried out and they cried out and nothing happened. And then he built the altar there and poured water on it and poured water on it. And then the power of God fell and consumed the sacrifice, proving again as it was in Moses, that he was God's man for the occasion. 
So why are Moses and Elijah here? Why this representation of the Old Testament law and this representation of the Old Testament prophets? They are here to demonstrate not only to the disciples, but to us as well, that Christ is the perfect fulfillment of the law and the perfect fulfillment of all the prophets had told. Everything that Jesus taught and represented was the complete culmination and fulfillment of everything that Moses and Elijah had taught. They're here in this moment to demonstrate this profound idea that Jesus as the Messiah had perfectly accomplished everything that Moses had proclaimed and that the prophets had proclaimed. There's no other way to do this. This is, this is one of those moments where to see these two men here, because the, the, old te- excuse me, the, the Jewish people would have revered and recognized these as two of the greatest men who have ever lived in the realm of spirituality, in the realm of God's work. And so now they are here demonstrating that Jesus is even greater than they, that he has perfectly fulfilled all that God had demanded to do. Now, we notice here that there's a special, also there's a special conversation. You have a special appearance, a special guest, and now a special conversation. Because notice there it says that Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Now, Matthew doesn't give us the description of what they were talking about, but thankfully Luke does. In Luke chapter 9, verse 31, it says, "...who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem." Now, that word departure, interestingly enough, actually is the same word for exodus that we talk about when we talk about Moses leading the children out of Egypt, this exodus out of Egypt. Now, listen to this. This is, this is really interesting to think about is that as, Jesus, as Moses led his people out of bondage into the promised land, so Jesus is going to lead his people out of sin and death and into the promises of God. So his departure is not just the departure of going to Jerusalem, but his departure is talking about leading his people, this exodus out of of the curse of sin and death into the promises of forgiveness and grace that are found in Jesus Christ. Now the third thing I want you to notice, there's a time of preparation and a monumental moment here, but there's also a foolish endeavor. It's almost come to the point, right, in reading through the book of Matthew, when you see the word Peter said, you almost just begin to shake your head because you know what's about to happen. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now Luke tells us that when this moment happened, that Peter and his companions, James and John, had been overcome with sleep, much as they had or were going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane which tells us it was most likely late at night. The disciples had been there praying for a while. They fell asleep. And as soon as they woke up, here's the first thing that they see before their eyes is this radiant, glowing Jesus. And then Elijah and Moses standing there with him. And so Peter blurts out and he says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Luke tells us again that Peter really didn't even realize what he was saying. He was so astounded, so brought, drawn back that he just kind of blurted out the first thing that came to his mind. And it's interesting here that, that Peter mentions tabernacles because scholars say that about the time that this event was taking place was about the time of the Feast of Tabernacles that the Jewish people celebrated. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles looked back to God's provision for His people in the wilderness when they were walking through. And so what people would do is literally they would build these small little booths out in the street. And instead of staying in their house, they would go and stay in these little booths or tabernacles all throughout the city as this representation of God's provision and His care for His people throughout the wilderness, um, um, the, the journey through the wilderness. 
And so in Peter's mind, he's like, well, if we're, having, if we're here and we're representing God and we're thinking about these two great men here, he said, maybe the greatest thing to do is to build these three tabernacles. But as oftentimes was the case with Peter at this point in his life, he was missing the larger picture at hand. This moment wasn't about celebrating Moses and Elijah. This moment wasn't about trying to make this, this encounter last for a long time. Peter, in this moment, he wanted to preserve what was happening, right? That's the reason you build a tabernacle. That's the reason you build a place to dwell in is because you want things to stay the same. Peter, in a sense, was saying, well, Lord, there's no need for you to go die now, right? Because Moses and Elijah are here. Let's just camp right here and and have a tent meeting for the rest of eternity. They're here. Let's just bask in the presence of your glory and in this splendor. But as I said, Moses and Elijah weren't there to be revered. They were there to do the revering. They were there to honor and celebrate Christ as the perfect Son of God and the true and only Messiah. So there's a foolish endeavor, and it wasn't, in fact, sinful what Peter had said, but it was just foolish, right? Because he was missing the picture. Jesus here, in all this, was trying to demonstrate God was showing through this encounter that he had set Jesus apart as the Son of God, set Jesus apart as the Messiah. But Peter was still caught up in this idea of this, what we might term as a revolutionary Messiah, one who is going to come and establish a kingdom here and now. And so he saw this as the first step of what was ultimately going to take place, that Jesus is going to establish an earthly kingdom here in this moment. But in fact, it was just the opposite. The next thing we find in this passage is a clear confirmation. A clear confirmation. Now, this is, in in, in my study, this is where this really, really gets good. So pay attention. It says, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, this cloud represents the Shekinah glory of God. We find this mentioned about 58 times throughout the scriptures in about 10 different books. And we find it when God went before the nation of Israel as a cloud by the day. It was the Shekinah glory, the cloud of God. It appeared on Mount Sinai in a cloud. It came down and filled uh, the wilderness temple. It appeared at the dedication of Solomon's temple. It was always this Old Testament representation of the presence of God. God doesn't have a physical body. He doesn't have a form like Jesus did or like we do. So this presence of God comes down in the form of a cloud. His glory descended here upon the mountain. And it does so in a sense to, to shroud the disciples, to let them know that he's there, but also to even to protect them from, from the splendor and the glory of who he is. Because it can't look upon him. They, a sinful man can't look upon a holy and a just and a righteous God. Now it's interesting here. Notice at the beginning of verse 5, it says that while he was still speaking. So Peter's still talking right now. Now, before it had been in chapter 16, it had been Jesus who had corrected Peter's assumptions, his false assumptions about what was happening. But here, God himself corrects Peter. And I don't know about you, but that's not a moment that I want to be in. I don't want to be speaking and God have to interrupt me to correct me and to tell me what I'm doing wrong. And based on all that's happening, There's no doubt in the disciples' mind, and we find this very firmly to us in the next verse, there's no doubt in the disciples' mind who is speaking to them at this moment. This is the very voice of God, and this statement should be very familiar to all of us because we've seen it earlier in Matthew chapter 3 when Jesus was baptized, and Jesus come up out of the water, and the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and heard the voice, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The idea of a son means one who is an identical nature in essence with Christ. 
But he also calls him a beloved son, which speaks to the relationship of divine love that they had one for another. And God says in all of this that he is well pleased, which means at the beginning of his ministry, God says, this is my son, one who's identical in nature with me, one whom I love, one with whom I'm well pleased. And now, almost to the culmination of the end of his ministry, after he has healed the sick and raised the dead and preached the gospel and preached the truth and rebuked the Pharisees, God says again, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So he's given this this stamp of approval over the authority of everything that Jesus has said and done. God is saying, I am well pleased in my son. This is an echo of Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, where it says, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He says to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. But there's not only the spoken voice here, this very familiar passage, but notice there at the end we find a very profound command, and it's the only thing that's different between what God said about Jesus at the beginning of his ministry and what he says now here towards the end of his ministry. Those last three words, listen to him. I jokingly told Pastor Ben that I was going to entitle this sermon, Shut Up and Listen, because this is literally what God is saying to the disciples here in this moment. He he said, you need to listen to what Jesus says. You need to listen to everything that he has given you. This is a reassurance that Jesus truly is the Messiah. We find in Deuteronomy chapter 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet from like among me from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. It was this Old Testament prophecy in Deuteronomy that when the Messiah arrived, we must listen. We must hear who he is. It pointed to the, the, the understanding that as the Messiah, that Jesus would be the spokesman of God. He would be the one who would speak with authority and power when it came to the matters of what God had to say. Now that Christ here is demonstrated as the Messiah, it was prudent, necessary, and demanded by God that he be listened to. There's this overarching theme here of win is because all this wonderful thing is happening, right? God himself is speaking. Moses and Elijah are there. The glory of the Lord is being revealed. And what does God say needs to happen in this moment? He says, you need to listen to Jesus. You need to listen to what he says. You need to listen to what he is going to tell you to do. James Montgomery Boyce said this. He said, could anything be more relevant today? We sometimes hear people say in a crisis situation, don't just stand there, do something. But one sharp theologian I know says when he's thinking about the truths of God revealed in Scripture, don't just do something, stand there. He means it's more important to stand firm on the truths of Scripture than to be active in Christian work. Similarly, we might say as we work at trying to understand what God said to Peter, don't just say something, which is what Peter was doing, listen to Jesus. Spurgeon followed this up by saying it is better to hear the Son of God than to see saints or build tabernacles. Oftentimes we get so caught up in everything else. We get caught up in the moments. We get caught up in the experiences. We get caught up in our own ideas and thoughts that we forget to stop and just listen to what Christ has to say. It's interesting because Peter, in his, uh, his account of this story in First Peter, says this, 
For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as was made to him by his majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. God is saying that we need to hear Christ above all and reverence him above everything. This is not a suggestion from God because God doesn't offer suggestions. God offers commands. And in this moment, enveloped in this cloud, they hear the very voice of God speaking and He says, listen to Him. Next thing I want you to notice in this passage in verses 6 and 8 is a compassionate Savior. Now obviously... As the Spirit of God descends upon them and this cloud envelops around them this Shekinah glory of God, the only natural response is for the disciples to fall upon their face. And it's exactly what we see happening here. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. We see sinful men before a holy God. And this is the only right response when we're, when we're confronted with the holiness and the glory and the splendor of who God is. In fact, one commentator said, God intended that the disciples should be struck with this terror in order to impress more fully on their hearts the memory of this vision. God is perfect and holy and just. And every time, this, this is kind of where it flies into the face of what we see oftentimes charismatics teaching about being slain in the Spirit or falling out in the Spirit. Uh, they, this understanding of, of, of this kind of joy of, of laughter and things like that you see being uh, propagated on television. Anytime in the Scripture we find someone coming face to face before a holy God, even if they are a, 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 a righteous person and one who's confessed Christ, they fall on their face forward, not backwards, forward in fear and reverence before God. They're confronted. I mean, even Isaiah, what did he say? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. So before the holiness of God, they fall down. They're terrified. They're like, what, what can we even do in this moment? How can we even get up? How can we even look up? They're, they're laying down on the ground. But think about today how people respond towards who God is. People so flippantly talk about God and, and reference God in such casual and cavalier ways. The reverence and the fear of God that we find in the New Testament and the fact that we really have found throughout the course of most of Christian history is gone because we have, we have dumbed God down. We, we've taken Him off the throne in, in, a, in a metaphorical sense, not that we can really take Him off the throne, but we've taken God off the throne and brought Him down on a common level with us to make a God that is suitable to our understanding and our abilities, right? We want a God who feels the same way that we feel. We want a God who, who thinks the same way that we think. That's what the world wants. Brothers and sisters, I don't want a God who identifies with me in, in the sense of, 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 of dumbed down as I am. Jesus identifies with us with our feelings, but I want a God who is majestic and holy and righteous, who sits on his throne of glory, ruling and reigning. I want a God who has a standard of righteousness and holiness. I want a God who is exalted above all things. I don't want a God who looks like me. Because I know who I am. I know the things in my heart. I know the things that I struggle with. So I want a God who I fall down before and worship, not because I'm afraid of, 
I'm being crushed, but just because of the reverence of who he is, because of the glory of who he is. So we see sinful men before a holy God. This should be our response. This should be the response of every person who comes in their sinful condition to the knowledge of who God is, of how great and holy he is and how sinful they are. It's the reason I've always struggled when I would go to camp meetings and youth revivals and at the end of the sermon, somebody would give an altar call and you'd have people you know, casually skipping down with a rope skip and a jump all the way down to the altar just laughing and being so joyous the whole way there. That's not what conviction looks like. Conviction over sin is when we are broken over what God has done for us. That He has forgiven us even though we were guilty. That Christ has come to die and we deserve hell and death, but God has made a way for us to be forgiven. But we also see sinful men before a holy Messiah. Because it says that Jesus comes to them and touched them and says, Get up, do not be afraid. Jesus comes to them, and in fact, the early church father, Jerome, says Jesus came and touched them because they were lying down and could not rise. He mercifully came up and touched them so that through his touch he might put to uh, flight their fear and strength their weakened limbs. And he said, rise and do not be afraid. Those whom he healed with his hands, he heals with his command, have no fear. First, fear is expelled so that afterwards doctrine may be imparted, end quote. So Jesus comes to them in this moment as this compassionate Messiah that we've seen all throughout the Scriptures, one filled with love and graciousness, and He comes over to them, and you can just see Him in that moment coming over and say, Guys, it's okay. Get up. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be in fear. But why? Because we know the holiness that God demands. How could Jesus say that before the presence of a holy God that sinful men do not have to be afraid because He's the one who's going to make it okay? He's the one who's going to make a difference so that sinful men can be okay before a holy God. So that sinful men can be filled with joy and get up and stand before a holy God because of what He is going to do. Now, there's an interesting thing at the last part of that verse, because notice what it says. It says, in lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Moses had been there. Elijah had been there. The presence of God had been there. And after all this is over, the last thing that they hear God the Father speak to them is, listen to him. And they fall down there on their face. And when they look up, the only thing that's left there is not the cloud, it's not the glory, it's not the splendor, but Jesus himself. Because Jesus is all they needed. They didn't need to look to Moses and the prophets and revere them anymore as, as holier or, or, or elevated above Jesus. Jesus now was the only one who was there and he was the only one that they needed to listen to. Jesus was the only one who was going to provide for them a way out. The only one who was going to provide a sacrifice for their sin. So this is just again confirming Jesus as the only Messiah. As we wrap up here, I want you to notice the next thing, an unusual demand. Very quickly, Jesus tells them as they were coming down the mountain, tell this vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Now think about how difficult this would be because this no one included not even the other disciples. As Peter, James, and John came off the mountain and they've experienced this this wonderful moment of of seeing uh, Jesus' glory revealed and seeing Moses and Elijah and, and seeing the presence of God, when they came down, they couldn't tell the other nine disciples. They couldn't tell anybody else. And why? 
Well, because the disciples themselves were not prepared for the full understanding of this. If Peter, James, and John had come down and told the other disciples because of the misconception they had about what the Messiah would look like and how he would put himself into power, they would have been tempted to view that as this moment. Okay, Jesus is establishing an earthly kingdom. Jesus knew that if the disciples knew, then everyone else would know. The story began to spread, and Jesus had already had to remove himself from several occasions because they wanted to establish him as a king. So Jesus says, you keep this to yourself. I've brought the three of you here to confirm this as a witness that this actually happened. And once I go to the cross, once I have died and I've risen from the dead, then you can tell this to whoever you want. Because this will confirm that even before I went to the cross, that God had confirmed this ministry. Last thing I want you to notice here is a sure sign. Verses 10 through 13. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. The disciples had a struggle here. They had obviously just seen Elijah there with Jesus. And it caused them to think back about what they had grown up and heard. Uh, the prophecies from Malachi. Malachi chapter 3 said, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then Malachi chapter 4, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will restore the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So tradition had taught from the scriptures that Elijah had to come as the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Now, James Boyce pointed out that there's two reasons that the disciples could have struggled here. One was chronological and the other was theological. Chronologically, their struggle would be that, Jesus, if you were the Messiah, where's Elijah? We know he was here in this moment, but why hasn't he already come? If you were the Messiah, shouldn't he have come first? There was this struggle of chronology here. But then it was also a theological question because the Malachi chapter 4 said that when Elijah arrived, he would restore all things. And so if this were the case, if, if Elijah were coming and he would restore all things before the arrival of Messiah, why would Jesus have to die? If, if, if Elijah was coming and would bring all people into a right relationship with God by restoring all things, then, then why would there be any need for Christ to go to the cross? But Jesus helps him to understand that, yes, this prophecy is true. That Elijah had come, but he had come in the person in the ministry of John the Baptist. Because what had happened was the disciples were misunderstanding this prophecy. Because when the prophet spoke about in Malachi about the coming of Elijah, he wasn't talking about a physical manifestation of Elijah. He was talking about one coming in the spirit of Elijah, which the scripture tells us that John the Baptist was one who came in the spirit of Elijah, functioning as the, the last of the Old Testament prophets in his style and apparel and the things that he ate and the way that he preached. And Malachi, even in that promise in verse chapter 4, wasn't promising a full restoration of all things. This had been a, a misinterpretation by the scribes and the Pharisees. So they were looking for this perfect messianic age to come before the arrival of Messiah. But Malachi said that he would restore the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers. He said, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So there's this, this obvious distinction there that if that didn't happen, if people didn't respond accordingly to the one who comes in the spirit of Elijah, that God would have to respond in 
judgment. Now we know that the leaders and the people did not all respond to the teaching of John. Not everyone was baptized in the wilderness under his ministry. So now all that could be expected was the coming judgment of God. He says Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, John the Baptist, and they did to him whatever they wished. They treated him in such a way. And Jesus says, so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. If they treated the one who came in the spirit of Elijah, if they treated the one who had been prophesied long ago in such a way, how could they expect the Son of Man to be treated any differently? It was necessary for Christ to go and to die to perfectly fulfill all of these things. This whole experience, this whole transfiguration moment was was to cement in the minds of these three men the truth of who Jesus was, and most importantly, His authority as the spokesman of God. The command of God to these three men in this moment, listen to Him, echoes to us today. But how do we do this? How do we listen to God, right? Because there are those out there today who would tell us that we can sit at home and listen to God, and He will speak to us in some type of audible or inaudible voice. There are those who say that that God is still speaking today, right? That that there are people who are still modern-day prophets who speak with the authority and the voice of the Lord. Or we just maybe wait for a mountaintop experience. Maybe we should go up on top of Mount Pisgah over there beside the TV tower and build some tabernacles and wait for the Spirit of God to descend with Moses and Elijah. But brothers and sisters, thankfully God has given us something better. Listen to the words of Peter. I already read to you the earlier part of that passage where Peter described everything that happened on that day. He described the glory of Jesus. He described the glory of Moses and Elijah. He described the cloud coming down and everything that happened. Now you think about this is a moment above any other moment. But listen to what Peter says. In spite of all that and in light of everything that happened, he says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know that, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter's experience alongside James and John was one that was unforgettable and incredible to be sure. But he says that there is something more sure, more certain, better than even that experience. And that's the Word of God. So if we want to hear from God, we don't have to wait for a mountaintop experience. We don't have to wait for Moses and Elijah to show up in our backyard. We don't have to wait for a fresh word from heaven because the Scripture tells us there is no more fresh word than what God has given us inside this book. And Peter goes on to say that this is not a matter of one's own interpretation. It's a matter of what God has said. Because this is the danger that we find in our day and time is because we want to read our experiences or our worldview into the Scripture and interpret it that way. But my experience has no bearing on what the Word of God means. My worldview has no experience on what the Word of God means. What the Word of God means is what the Word of God means. We find so many people appealing to their experiences and justifying it. I want to read James Boyce again. And this is writing probably almost 40 years ago. And he says we have nothing that is more poignant to the time in which we live, he says, because we hear people justifying all types of unbiblical teaching or behavior by words such as, God told me this is all right, or I feel at peace with what I am doing. 
He says, but here is Peter, a prominent apostle of the Lord, a man who had a visual experience of Christ's transfiguration as well as hearing an audible voice of God from heaven, experiences confirmed as true by the other apostles who were with him at the time, speaking of God's revelation in the Bible as being more certain even than his exceptional experience. He does it to remind us that we must evaluate our experiences by the Bible's teaching rather than the other way around. Some 40 years later, we find ourselves fighting the same battle in the time in which we live, even inside of our own convention. Just last week, a well-known Southern Baptist church out in California uh, ordained uh, several women as pastors inside the church in, in, in disagreement with the Baptist faith and message. And so there's been this big debate amongst leaders inside the SBC, some who said, you know, listen, this is wrong. Scripture very clearly limits the office of pastor inside the church to men. But then you have others who are saying, well, you know, we, you know, in my experience, I feel, you know, God loves everybody. But what we find here is the exact thing that Peter is warning against. The exact thing that God is warning against because he says, listen to him. Listen to what Christ has said through the word because it doesn't matter what culture says. Culture is going to say that anybody who wants to be a pastor can be the pastor if they really feel in their hearts that they want to be a pastor. I don't deny that there might be people who aspire to the role of pastor who really, really want to be a pastor in their hearts. But the scripture is very clear that women cannot be in the position of a pastor in the authority of a church. In the same regard, there are some men who cannot be in the position of pastor because they don't meet the scriptural qualifications. So we're not saying that it's about the, the gender of so much of just a worldly standard. We're saying this is what God has said to us. But it also comes into play when we talk about social justice issues. Because there's so many people that want to read all of these things through the current lens of things that are happening and try to read those things into the Scripture and make the Scripture mean something that it doesn't. The Scripture says that God has died for every person. Not in the sense of every person, but in the sense of every type of person. No matter where they're from, no matter what color their skin is, no matter what socioeconomic background they have, God has died for all kinds of people. But people want to read it in and may say that, well... You know, we want to, to lean this one way or the other or to make special exemptions here or there, exceptions here or there. So the question that we have to ask when we come to the end of this, because we find this same thing happening, people saying and justifying all of this by saying, well, I feel like this is okay. I feel like this is all right. I feel like God has told me that, that it's okay for me to do this. I've heard people use that exact terminology. But the question is, is what did Jesus say? Not just in what did Jesus say through his, his written down words that are oftentimes written in red in the apostles, but what did Jesus say? Because what does it say? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus, he's all of this. This is his word. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, this is the word of God to us as his people. So we say, what does Jesus say? What does God say? It's not just what he's recorded as saying in the apostles, but what did he say throughout the entirety of this book? And then the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we listening? Are we listening to Jesus? Are we obeying Him? And if not, who are you listening to? Are you listening to your experiences? Is your experiences or your worldview shaping your thought about the Word? Or are you allowing the Word to shape your experiences? Are you allowing the Word to shape your worldview? This always has to come first. God was speaking and showing Peter, James, and John, This is my Son. I have set Him apart as the Messiah. I've called him, you can trust him, but most of all, you can listen to him. And you should listen to him, because he will guide us in all things.
Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Lord, what a challenge I know from my own heart this has been. And Father, what a, as you always do, perfectly lined up with many things that are happening around us, just to remind us, God, of the truth of your word and the truth of who Christ is, that we have to hear him above all things. We can have powerful experiences, as Peter, James, and John did upon the mountain. We can have, Father, just feelings in our heart that, that, that seem overwhelming. But Lord, if they contradict with your word, we must put them in subjection to your word. We must listen to what Jesus has said to us. Father, help us to do that. In a world that is filled with subjectiveness, in a world that is filled with people who want to create a God in their own image, Lord, help us to trust you and to know you as truth and to listen to what you have said and to do it. And we ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name.